Welcome to Engaging Culture, a podcast presented by Bridgeway Christian Church. On today's episode, Pastor Lance Hahn and I will be resuming our series, What Does It Mean to Be Pro-Life? by talking about police action and war. The recent shooting of Stefan Clark has prompted conversations and protests throughout the Sacramento region and around the country. We'll talk about how Christians can and are responding to the situation. We'll also talk about violence and war, and Lance and I will share different perspectives on how we believe the Bible leads us to think about those subjects. All of that on this episode of Engaging Culture. All right, welcome to the Engaging Culture podcast, season one, episode 24. My name is Brian Kiley, joined by Pastor Lance Hahn. Hello. Hello, everyone. It's so nice to have you with me. Oh, wait, so I'm with nice. you. You're with me. So nice. I know what you're thinking. It's so nice to be with me. You're so happy that we're that doing was, this. That's exactly together. what I was thinking. All right. Well, um, we are resuming a series called What Does It Mean to Be Pro-Life? I don't know about you. I got a lot of comments on the first two episodes, first two episodes in this series. We, one, we talked about gun control and one we talked about what did we talk about? Uh, the death, death penalty. penalty. There we go. I got a lot of comments from people <laughs> saying, wow, that was uh, that was interesting. Yes. What I thought was funny is uh, some folks in their personality thrive on like the tension yep. that we had. Uh-huh. And some of the people that are a little bit more um, shy, <laughs> they were like, yeah, that was uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> can, can you guys just stop arguing? Please? Yeah. Can you just get along? Yeah. No, that's pretty funny. So uh, we should have uh, kept the camera rolling for like 30 seconds after the last episode episode since immediately we went off camera and just like started like laughing and smiling and yes. all of that. So anyway, and then of course, last two weeks ago, we had uh, Dan Burns on, who's like the nicest person in the world. So yeah, he was, makes us both look like a jerk. There was no like tension at all, really. So, um, but we're going to get back into it today. We're going to dive right in. Part of the, part of the point of this show, uh, hey, it's fun to be able to talk about issues where there's not a lot of controversy and tension, but uh, we live in a world where there's a lot of that, and we yeah. created this podcast so that we can have a space to talk through those issues, uh, not always necessarily claiming that one or both of us is expressing the locked down right. kind of bulletproof truth, but wanting to talk about these issues in a, in a nuanced biblical fashion. Um, we planned a long time ago to do an episode about war and police action. Yeah. Uh, since then, obviously, uh, the issue of, of police action has come to our doorstep with the shooting of Stefan Clark. I know that you, Lance, have been very involved in a lot of conversations with faith leaders throughout the community. Take us through, first of all, your, your processing just as a human being, for, for getting your role as a leader in the community, your own processing through this situation as a human being, and then tell us about some of the conversations you've been in with other uh, faith leaders, other Christ followers. Yeah, so um, it is almost impossible for me to separate out kind of my role and what I do with who I am. It's kind of interlaced. So like, for example, anytime I hear a news story, I'm going to think automatically through a Christian lens. Then I'm going to think automatically through a leader lens, and I'm going to say, well, how does it affect greater Sacramento area? Um, when it happened right here in our backyard with the Stefan Clark shooting, um, I immediately thought of my friends, my leaders that are very, very close to that situation. I thought about the um, unity that we are trying to build amongst churches and, and crossing divides. And I thought, oh, no, that's in danger. Um, I thought about um, the, the horrific sadness that the Clark family was feeling. Um, I thought about uh, the backlash against the police, of which we have a lot of police officers um, at Bridgeway. Um, and as we know that I'm pro-police as yep. well. Yep. 
Um, and so I, I, I felt like there was a, oh no feeling yeah. that, that uh, like a, almost like a confused, I don't even know how to think right now. Like he, here's, here's a part that, that even betrays where I come from. I went into this mode of, okay, I guess we'll find out more facts as they come. Hmm. That just saying that is a certain perspective, which not everybody shares. Um, and, and it is very much of a, um, from the, who I am, the privilege that I have, the color of my skin, the economic situation that I'm in, the removed. So for me to even say the phrase, I guess we'll find out more information, automatically betrays where I'm coming from. There's some luxury. Kind There's of a luxury in the ability to, do that. to make that statement. I think that's a very important point. Yeah, because um, to those of us that have been raised like me, that sounds like the next logical step. And we kind of think that's how everyone should think. And, and um, so what, what I'll just say is as a human being, the learning curve, you know, I've already done so many studies on this particular issue. And for years, I've been studying the situation um, that African-Americans are facing in modern day America. And so, you know, in some ways I have a degree in it, right? Because all my studies and yet the gap and the misunderstanding and is still so large that through this particular shooting and the engagements I've had with people uh, was almost like a degree in and of itself. Right. And I still feel woefully inadequate. So anyway, so for me, it was a big learning curve. Yeah. Uh, that just got shoved right into our faces. Yeah. And you better come up quick because right. people want to know answers right now. Right. And your silence says volumes. Now, it doesn't always say what everyone thinks it says. Sometimes it means, oh my gosh, I'm lost and confused. Help me. Whereas, but it is viewed as nobody cares. Yeah. And and I had to deal with a lot of that. So if that's what you were kind of thinking. Yeah, I mean you're you're it's such a tough situation because you want to speak in a manner that's helpful, yes. in a manner I don't that make it is worse. respectful, yes. in a manner that is appreciative of pain and the gravity of the situation, but I don't know about you, I don't always have statements like that on the ready, you know, no. I need to process and pray and think, but certainly someone like you in your position uh, when there is silence, oftentimes that silence can get filled with assumption, which is obviously very challenging. Yeah. I, um, uh, and give you an idea, you were asking a little bit about some of the meetings yeah, that, I, that yeah. I've been a part of. Um, it was not that long after that, I was down in Meadowview having, uh, having a sit down with yeah. other pastors. Meadowview is where it happened. So uh, we were looking over the very yard yeah. where it happened in the in the place that we were meeting and meeting with different um, leaders in the African-American community, uh, faith leaders, yeah. um, talking through with a lot of different um, leaders in the white community. We were all at ground zero. And you can't just go, uh, gosh, I don't I don't know. I've never thought about this before, uh, you know, because it's the 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 passion and the real pain and angst and everything rising to the surface, that type of wounding and hurt in a community demands a response. Yeah. And you want to be able to say, I immediately opt into a compassion mode, right? Which is always appropriate. The problem is that sometimes compassion, when mixed with ignorance, 
<laughs> ends up being non-helpful compassion. Yeah, that's a good point. And so there was a bit of a freeze up, I think, on a lot of people and it made everything very awkward. Hmm. Um, I have also had different um, interactions with members of the police. I've had different interactions with um, a lot of people that come from that world. And so my, I'm always in the tension in the center where everybody right. is bringing incredibly different perspectives, right, right, to my doorstep and saying, you agree with me, right? Yeah, why don't you see it my way? Yeah. Or can't we all just assume this is how it is? <laughs> yeah. So I have been in those conversations very thick and rich since the moment it went down. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit, and this is a, this is a pretty in-depth subject I'm about to bring up, but maybe just kind of give us a snapshot if that's even possible. I've heard you talk in different environments in the last couple of weeks about a disconnect. Yeah. Uh, a disconnect in part, and correct me if I'm, I'm characterizing this incorrectly, uh, between maybe more suburban people and how they think about uh, what is going on versus those in a more urban population, or even even if we want to be as, as clear as kind of difference in the way that people of different races and ethnicities are, are understanding the situation. Uh, you say there's a significant disconnect that is preventing us from having helpful dialogue. Can you, yeah. can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's actually probably been the most dominating factor of all this for me is, is the gap. And so here's the thing. A lot of the gap um, now, there's don't get me wrong. There's a significant gap between the black and white community in a lot of areas, yeah. um, and and it comes back down to experience and what is the world we are living in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't want to diminish that. That sure. is actually a very significant element. But there's also a significant difference between wealthy and poverty, hmm. um, because that actually creates a different world. So when I talk about this issue, I tend to slide into the wealthy and poverty area because wealth gives you an ability to step back, hide, isolate, think. You know, um, the other thing is that when you're wealthy, you have less interaction with the police. Hmm. Um, And so you'd say, well, why is that? Because you have the wealth to hide. That's actually, that's kind of why. But... Anyway, as we're as we're talking through all this, the gap that I found was highlighted in the scenario because of the reactions to what was immediately coming out of people on the Stefan Clark shooting. So let me let me give you an example. I'll just yep. I'll just kind of run through some things. Now, what I'm about to say um, is going to uh, be very simplistic, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's going to cause more questions than answers. I, I want to be very clear on that. We will be having a podcast in the future where we will be talking more specifically about challenges with the African-American community and with police forcing, things like enforcement. Um, But we need more voices in the room. It it doesn't need to be just you and I. So quite frankly, (laughs) me just even walking onto this right now (laughs) is like I'm walking on a bridge that's about to break. So so a little nervousness here, but... um, let me let me state out just simply to point out the gap. Yep. Okay. So here's the gap. When most wealthy um and usually it's Caucasian, right? Because we are this is the part that a lot of people still forget and it seems so odd is that we are the dominant group in terms of numbers. So even though California, right, as far as a demographic is shifting dramatically to where um, Hispanic is becoming a more sizable group than even Caucasian. Mm-hmm. Um, in America, uh, we are considered the majority, and then there are minority groups. So minority means actually smaller in size. Right. So 
when that happens, there are things that go along with being a majority group. So as I'm talking about, I'm talking about, and what I call wealthy is not what everyone else calls wealthy. I mean, wealthy meaning above the poverty line. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, the wealthy white community tended to have a reaction about the shooting that went something like this. Wow. What a horrific incident. I feel so bad for that family. Wow, I feel terrible for the officers that ended up having to draw their weapons because now they're in counseling, right? Because mm -hmm. they're wounded, because they're thinking what what has just happened. Wow, what a sad situation. I wonder how it's going to turn out. I don't know what I would do in that situation. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah. That was almost always the response I would guess. At least it was 100% of the response I received from from that community. Sure. The other side of it was from either the African-American community or it was from um, uh, a lower class group in poverty that went, dear Lord, this happened again? This mm -hmm. happened in my backyard? Absolutely not. And rage and fear and everything exploded. Yeah. And it was because it was not a, even just about one event. It came upon a whole train that is that is going on underneath the ground. So having said all that, I began to try to figure out, now, why is this? Now, here's the simplistic answer that I was going to give. Mm -hmm. Is I, uh, um, uh, and I'm trying not to be insulting, but um, <laughs> so, so we'll, we'll, we'll say suburban. Okay. Suburban. There we go. That's, that sounds so much nicer than, <laughs> than, than some other phrases I could use. Um, people like me, uh -huh. <laughs> we'll just say that. Um, we were we were raised with a, a game that we play called authority. Mm -hmm. And the authority game goes something like this. You have parents, you have teachers, stuff. You have people in society that are uh, called authority. And kids are supposed to know, okay, this is an authority, this is not. This is an authority, this is not. Um, one of those is the police. Mm -hmm. And what happens is we actually put them in blue suits. like I mean, like dress them up into little outfits. And we say, now that's an authority. They have a little shiny star mm -hmm. and they, they carry guns and things like that. Yeah. Now, they're like everybody else. They're one of the authority things. Now, we're all going to pretend they're the authority because you would the child could ask, well, why are they the authority? <laughs> and you go, well, because we just made it up. They just are. Well, they just are. We just made that up. Now, in that, what we do is we say, now, here's how you interact with the police. There's a four-step process. What they're going to do is like all the other authorities, they're going to come up to you and they're going to tell you nicely what to do because their job is to keep us safe. Their job is to protect and serve. It says it right on their cars, right? So they're the good guys. And what we need you to do is we need you to do whatever they tell you to do. Ma'am, I need you to pull over the car. Sir, I need you to step over here, please. This type of thing. They're a little bit gruff, but they are, they're, they're directing because they're thinking of things that everyone else isn't thinking about. Right? right? Their own safety, the safety of their other officers, they're thinking of your safety, they're here to protect and serve. Yeah. All right. If you do not comply to that, they will shift into phase two. Phase two means they're going to become bullies. They're going to shout and yell and they're going to raise their voice and they're going to be rude to you to force you to do something. Essentially exercising the authority they've been given. Yes. Right. Yes. Uh, if you do not comply, they will go to step three. 
phase three is they will use non-lethal force on you. They will shove you. They will handcuff you. They will tase you. They will do whatever it is to force you to do what they want you to do. Mm -hmm. If you do not comply, they will uh, go to lethal force and they will shoot and kill you. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a game that we were taught, which is this is how it goes. So everyone's saying, oh, that's how it works. To many people in suburbia, that is an undeniable fact. Now, okay. here's the problem. That is not always true. That only works as a system if there is trust. Because it's actually a fake game. The game is that we're going to call somebody an authority, whether they are or not. We're going to designate them as authority. Mm -hmm. For example, let me give you this analogy. Let's say your teacher is an authority as well. Let's say your teacher comes to you as a child, Brian, and says, and his, his name, whatever, Mr. Green, and he says, uh, oh, young Brian, you look so handsome today. I have a pool. It's really hot outside. Would you like to come to my house and have a private swim party with me? Something's supposed to ring in your mind that there's an alarm. Yeah. And the alarm says... You are my authority. At least everyone's telling me you are. Something's not right here. I am to defy that authority for the purpose of my safety. Right. So because the trust is now broken, there's a danger there. Now, you look at it from a different perspective, which is, um, which is a lot of wrestlings with the inner city and a lot of the wrestling, especially predominantly with the African-American community. Mm -hmm. What I heard through the Stefan Clark shooting is every suburban person said, why would you not comply? Mm -hmm. And the answer will shock most people. Mm -hmm. And it was because I'm going to die anyway. Hmm. There is no trust. There is only fear. Fight or flight, neither one of those is comply. Right. I'm going to die if I am handcuffed. I'm going to die if I am put on the ground. I'm going to die. I need to either, number one, get to a well-lit area where other people can see me and cameras can be brought out so that I, there can be accountability. Yeah. Because I'm going to die whether I agree with them, whether I lay down, whether I stand up, whether I run away. If that is my mindset, mm -hmm. I have to get out of here. Yeah. I can't just lay down and die. Yeah. Now, Regardless of whether you think that is a correct perspective or a non-perspective, it was the perspective it, it exists of Stefan Clark, and yep. it exists. Yep. And so the, the real hardship, and, and this is what we'll get into in another podcast, so I have to close this piece out. Right. But um, the problem is, is we have disrespect on both sides, right. which is exacerbating the problem. Yep. Officers are saying, I'm trying to put my life on the line for you. I put on the outfit by choice yep. to try to protect you, and I'm getting disrespected. The African-American community is saying, you are coming in. There's no such thing as phase one with us. There's only phase two. Mm -hmm. There is only bullying. There's only pushing around. There's only, hey, boy, what are you doing over there? There's that. Mm -hmm. And so that disrespect is agitating the situation. But the greatest problem I believe that we are facing today is that both are in abject fear. The community that is being policed is in abject fear, and the police yeah. are in abject fear for their lives. Yeah. Everybody's in fear, and it's causing a huge 
So anyway, just pointing yeah. out the gap. No, that's absolutely the uh, gap is significantly different. Yeah, there's. Uh, I think that's absolutely. I think that's absolutely right, and it's important for for everybody to recognize that uh, just the perspectives on on this situation are going to vary radically based on your experience, based on your demographics, based on uh, just a lot of kind of the, the elements of this that are really easy to to not pay attention to. So um, we need to move on. But right. uh, obviously, I mean, I don't know. It just feels to me like there's so much that's inflammatory in these sorts of situations. Right, yeah. and, and, and I appreciate what you said a little bit ago about kind of the luxury of Taking your t- taking the time to yes. disengage and all of that. That th- th- there is some privilege spoken into some of that. You know, some of that stuff as as you and I have talked about. I also think there's some privilege in saying, "Well, come on, everybody, let's all just get along." Yeah, uh, it's easy for us to say that from from our position, but. I don't know. How can Christians, especially locally here in Sacramento, how can we be part of the solution and part of bringing about? positivity in the midst of all of this. Yeah. So one of the things I think I hear from everyone that is wise on all sides of this issue is we have to have more conversation. We have to be willing to dialogue. We can't just throw emotional bombs at each other and back up. We cannot also just present. One of the things I love about this environment is you and I go back and forth. I can ask clarifying questions. We can argue. I think that's necessary because what we have is people presenting their best information. Someone else presents it and then it's quiet. Hmm. I don't think that's how learning happens. I think that there needs to be true conversation. So Christians, we are called to have civil, respectful, learning conversations. It means you have to be willing to put your own agenda on the side for a moment and listen deeply and say, what Jesus are you trying to say here? Where are the gaps in my learning? Let's say I'm 99% right. You have 1% to grow in. So no matter how you feel, there has to be an ability that when you hear information, you don't automatically just dive into what do I want to say next? Yeah. I'm going to shut them down Yeah. Um, on either side it, until we have dialogue and we begin to hear each other's hearts because sometimes the pain and the fear and everything else is distorting some of the language, right. but the hearts are still right. right. And so listening is heavy. Yep. Dialogue is extraordinarily important and prayer is paramount. Yep. Couldn't agree more. I think that, um, one a point that I wanted to make is exactly what you just said is I think that uh, listening deeply is so undervalued in these sorts of situations. And I think part of the reason that that happens is because in so many quote unquote controversial issues, we feel the need to take sides. Yes. And, and I like, I've come to really dislike the phrase both sides because it implies that there are two sides and you have to pick one. Mm-hmm. And I just think that is a logical fallacy, first of all. Uh, and I think that is a, uh, that that does not help because when I say I'm on this side, now all of a sudden, if I'm listening to you, if I if I feel persuaded by what you have to say, that all, all of a sudden is sort of, it's almost an attack on my identity. It's threatening. Like it's very threatening to me. And there's psychological research about this that people will dig in in the face of contrary information, they'll actually dig into their own perspectives. Maybe you and I will do this in a few minutes when we talk about that. For the sure. rest of what we're doing. But so I think even the language of both sides is dangerous challenging um i remember and i i told you beforehand i wanted to share about this yeah. that uh so so my son and i go to a lot of kings games we we love basketball we're big kings fans and 
we went down to the arena for one of the games where protesters shut it down. It was the second game. And I remember, and I'm very comfortable down there. I have my routine. My son, is he's only six, but he's comfortable. We park in the same place. We walk the same route. We go the same way. And as we're walking around the arena, I started to hear chanting. And I remember saying to him, and I, and the thought that this game would get shut down wasn't even really on my mind. I knew it had happened a few days prior, but I thought that kind of that was done with. And as soon as the chanting started, I said to my son, I said, buddy, we might not be able to go to the game. Of course, he says, what the heck? Why not? And sure enough, we see all these protesters. And so he and I kind of kept our distance and we watched what was going on and I explained to him what was happening. And he's only six. So obviously I'm not going to tell him what exactly happened. Right. But I just said, uh, in, in terms a six-year-old can understand, I said, buddy, something really awful happened in our community, in our city. And people are really sad about it. And sometimes when you're sad and you feel like people aren't listening, the only thing you can do is get together with other people and do what's called protesting, where you say, hey, everybody, I need you to understand how sad and how hurt we are. And he, he, and he was a champ about it. He understood. And we actually, we had, we sat there for a while and things started to get a little tense. And I just thought, you know, whatever, we're going to, we're going to get out of here. And, and we left. And here's what I thought as I was sitting there. Was I a little bit annoyed that, you know, my son and I couldn't go to the game? Yeah, I was. We had, you know, we, it was going to be a special occasion for us. We'd upgraded our tickets to sit closer and blah, blah, blah. It was, you know, whatever. It's a little irritating. But as I sat there and I was listening to these protesters and we can debate, is it appropriate to try to shut down a game or not? But I thought to myself, these individuals are expressing a pain I cannot possibly understand. Yeah. And to acknowledge that does not make me anti-police. Right. At all. Yeah. I, I have such tremendous respect for police officers and the, the work that they do. And to say that I have tremendous respect for police officers and the work that they do does not negate my ability to say to these protesters, I don't understand your pain and your right to express it. Yeah, we can we can say both of those yes. things at the same time, and Amen. on some level, uh, I think we have to if we're going to have any hope of moving forward. No, so. I, I and that's and uh, one of the things that Pastor Brian and I want to always reiterate for our listeners is just because we've we've got to stop the whole you're either all for this or you're all for that. Yeah, that is not wisdom. That is a, in my opinion, uh, a satanic design. Yeah. that that creates division. So yeah. we're going to fight against that with everything that we have. Um, to be able to say that, no, it's much more nuanced than that. Mm -hmm. And you're allowed to love more than one person. <laughs> All right. How about that? All right. So we are going to get into a, a broader question here, and that is, uh, the question of Christians and lethal violence and when, if at all, it is appropriate uh, for Christians to engage in, in lethal violence and uh, military action and things uh, of that nature. Now, there's some overlap in our perspectives, but there's a lot of difference as well. And, and before we get into kind of laying out our positions, Lance, talk about what has influenced you growing up in terms of your thinking about uh, things like war, the military, violence, or even your interest in those subjects. What, what are maybe some influences or some things that have shaped you? Yeah. So I think that I was, um, largely it came from scripture and we'll, we'll get into this in a moment, but, mm -hmm. but largely it came from the idea of justice. Uh, for me, justice has always been a big deal. Now I'm very, very high personal responsibility. I'm very, very high, um, social justice. Mm -hmm. And, um, whether it was through, I've always leaned in towards the, let's get the bad guys. Um, and let's protect the good guys. Mm -hmm. So it, I am also very much of a underdog defender mm -hmm. uh, just by sheer personality. 
Uh, everything that I do, everything I talk about is to try to challenge the majority for the minority because I believe that when we have privilege or we have power, we have more responsibility. So I tend to hold those near me much more accountable than those that I do not know, right? Yeah. So it makes it bad to be one of my friends. <laughs> but anyway, um, growing up, um, reading different things, uh, watching uh, television shows, um, being around a lot of media can obviously distort and, and create an un, unreal world. Sure. But in all those things, it allowed me to engage with stories and engage with things that were outside of my my own experience, right? Yeah. I've never been around a lot of violence, but I've read and observed a lot of violence uh, through media. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and when I say media, I also mean the news, sure. right? Yeah. So whether or not it's fake stuff or it's real stuff or whatever it is, I engage with a lot of that. Um, and I always felt like God was about setting things right. So the very sense of justice is super, super important to me. Um, so it gave me a high respect for anybody that would sacrifice to try to protect somebody else. In my opinion, that is what the police should be. Mm -hmm. uh, it is what the military should be. So because of that, I tend to raise them up in my mind with high respect because I love the idea of self-sacrifice and defense. So for anyway, so for me, that's what got me into all that, that, that stuff. What about, what about you? Yeah. Um, I have not really engaged with, uh, I mean, personally have not really been in a lot of kind of violent situations. Um, I have, I've never been very interested in violent entertainment. Uh, for example, it was, it was not allowed when I was very young. And then even as I've gotten older, uh, I just have no interest in it at all. And it's funny. Well, I don't know, funny and a little bit morbid. Like I've had different instances in my like young, like maybe like late teens, early twenties life where it's almost like I, I can't even explain what happened. It's like, I forgot that I don't like violence. And I watched like saving private Ryan and I was right. horrified or I was like, you know, in college, I'm like, Hey guys, let's go see black Hawk down. And I'm like, this is awful. I hate this. Um, you know, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I've always just sort of been repulsed by it. I've always thought it was kind of stupid. Uh, I don't really get the appeal of it from an entertainment perspective. Uh, I think violence in general is a really bad idea. Um, you know, just call yeah, me crazy. I wish me, I was more like call, call, me, call me crazy. I'm just not a fan. And um, now, with that being said, uh, always had, like I said a moment ago, extraordinary respect for uh, police officers. Um, and even though as we'll, we'll get into, you know, my perspective here in a little bit of, of not being in favor of war, uh, I have tremendous respect for men and women who serve in the military. I, for three years, in fact, my very first job in ministry was serving as a college pastor, uh, five miles from Camp Pendleton. Yeah. So my military, my base. little congregation was half community college students, half Marines. So I engaged and interacted with a ton of Marines. Uh, obviously, amongst the older population of the church, there were Marines. I prayed for young men. I don't think there were any young women when I was there. All young men who were getting ready to be deployed. I sat in the parking lot with a friend who was getting ready to be deployed to talk about what do we do with his wife or how do, I, how do we support his wife if something happens over there. So the reality of military life, I've never experienced it myself, but... 
I've spent a lot of time around it. I've lived in a military community. I have extraordinary respect for anyone who'd be willing to put themselves in harm's way. Uh, I've taught my kids and will continue to teach my kids. You know, we stand and we clap when they introduce members of the armed services, members of the police force, firefighters, people like that at sporting events or, or any sort of public gathering. We give them honor and we give them respect. Um, but with that, I balance that perspective with a perspective that says, uh, I don't like violence. I'm not entertained by it. Uh, I don't think it works for the most part. Or when it does work, I think there's tremendous collateral collateral damage. And I think that our faith has a lot to say about that, which obviously is what we're going to get into. Yeah. Um, so any any quick response to that? Um, no, I, I, no, honestly, I think we should kind of dig right into it because yeah. um, uh, and the reason why we link in the police and military is because there are there are dramatic similarities. So yeah. the idea is that, uh, like for example, nowadays um, our police are outfitted with a lot of similar materials and weapons and things like that 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 uh, you know that soldiers would have yeah. right out on the field. There there's certain gear that they wear in terms of protective gear and things yeah. like that. And so one of the challenges that have that have come up in recent years is that our police now appear to be paramilitary forces, right? Yeah. And then the idea is that, well, wherever there's military forces, there must be a war, right? So if you're in our neighborhood and you look like you're set for war, are you at war with us? Hmm. You know, and it creates a different atmosphere. Now, yeah. um, what the reason why we link this in, and we'll talk more about, I think, more about military yeah. for the rest of our program. Yeah. But- when you talk about the necessity of using force to get something done mm -hmm. to get to to push back on the bad guys, yeah. whoever the, they are, um, I want everyone to remember that I, I don't think there's anyone in in any side of this conversation that is ever going to say, you know what I like? Bad guys. <laughs> you know who I think should have a wonderful time? Bad guys. Nobody says that. Let's make things easier on them. Right. Um the definition of who the bad guys are actually is the essence of the issue. Yeah. Who are the bad guys? Yeah. Because to some people right now that how we're operating as police forces is going against people that are not the bad guys. That's one argument. Yeah. Um, in military war discussions, some people would say when we keep saying we're the good guys, what if we're the bad guys? And the idea of we're going out and doing what to whom yeah. is that are they the bad guys? Like who's the so I think the real essence, not only philosophically, we're gonna talk a little bit about um lethal force at all, right. but but I think a big part of it is who's the bad guys. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that 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 is not always as obvious as we want to make it. No, you right. everyone assumes we yeah. all think the same. Well, and you said you mentioned this in a sermon. It wasn't this last week and it was a couple weeks ago where you talked about how you've always had people come to you in difficult situations like they're going to court and you've never had somebody say, Pastor, I'm going to court and I'm the bad guy. It's <laughs> right. like, wow, that is quite a record of always the good guys come to you. Yes. Right. One hundred percent of the time I have been approached by people on the good side. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's 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 funny, but it makes a serious point is that we all think we're the good guys. Of course we do. It's just like, I mean, I, I, I nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm a jerk. I'm going to go out and try to be a jerk today. <laughs> right. But we all know jerks. Anyway, that's uh, it's it is what it is. So so here's a question that I want to I want to I want to talk about for a minute here. And uh, so I'm an advocate of, of Christian nonviolence. Yes. I, I don't think I can quite 
carry the label pure pacifist, but I'm close. My experience has taught me is I, and I'm just very interested in sort of Christian ethics and kind of what does it mean to live as a disciple of Jesus today? And I like to dig into kind of these issues and really put them on their head and think through them deeply, which means I kind of like you, I'm not really satisfied with easy answers, which means people tend to get irritated with me because I, yeah. I don't really, I just, the simple answers just don't really work for me. And I, I think I have that agitating peacemaker vibe in me that, that you've described for yourself. So I've, I'm not stirring the pot. For a greater good, not for the sake of just being right, controversial, right. is has been a big part of my life. And I've had different reactions. I have never had people respond with as much anger mm. to any issue I have talked about than the way they've responded to, to, to my assertion that Christians are called to be nonviolent people. In fact, I have joked, and this is going to reflect my perspective, obviously. Right. I have joked, if you want to make a Christian violently angry, <laughs> start telling them about what the New Testament teaches about nonviolence. Why do people get so upset about this issue? Yeah, um, uh, let me make it super personal. Um, <laughs> and that is, uh, so Pastor Brian and I, when we were preparing for different podcasts, we'll kind of lay out some different thoughts and then we'll hand it to the other person and they kind of do some redlining. They kind of write through different it literally sort of in our red agreement and our disagreement. Yeah, yeah. Agreement and disagreement. And we were both a little bit tired as we were coming into some of these <laughs> podcasts and we're like, man, I don't know if I have any energy for this. And I started reading his answers and I was like, oh my goodness, I am getting so agitated right now. And I started getting mad and, and I was, and, and what it did is I started thinking, why am I getting so agitated? And to clarify, this is for this episode. This episode, you're getting mad at reading. Oh, my but stuff I got mad at your last, at my last episode. episode too. That's yes. right. Okay. Yes. No, I got mad at that one too. <laughs> um, and I got super agitated. And this is what I have to do. I believe in um, constant self-examination. I had to stop and say, Lance, what is going on with you? Why are you so agitated? Like what? What is it? Okay, so let's say Pastor Brian is bringing up and saying, hey, we need to be like Jesus. I don't think Jesus was super violent. All of a sudden, I'm like, yes, he was. He, you know, And I'm like all angry about it. But here's the irony. I am like the nicest guy ever. I don't do violence. I am like Mr. Peacemaker. Yes, I talk with words and all that stuff. And I you know, stir the pot in order to settle it down better. All these things. I'm not a violent guy. I own weapons for target shooting. Like I'm not, uh, there's nobody being harmed in this episode, right? Yeah. <laughs> like I, I'm, and yet when Pastor Brian starts talking about things that reflect my own current lifestyle, I'm like, how dare you? Right. And I got super mad. Now here's, here's what I really came up with because it didn't make sense to me. Why am I reacting emotionally to this? And I believe it is fear. And here's why. Because both sides, once again, are operating in fear. The fear on the pacifist side is your violence, everybody else, is by definition hurting people. It's called violence. That's kind of why it does that. And I'm scared at the outcome. On the other side, so on the side that I would be arguing, which is sometimes the necessity of lethal force, Mm -hmm. I... I'm scared that pacifists are going to be in control. I'm afraid they're in ignorance going to place more people in jeopardy and harm 
because of an improper view. And as much as some may die now, millions more will die if a pacifist view is in play. And so I'm in, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. And that fear is stirring my emotions mm-hmm. and I'm lashing out to try to shut it down so there's no danger, which is just mm-hmm. ironic. The whole thing is just weird to me. But anyway. Huh. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, no, I mean, obviously, I think fear is a is a big part of it. I I think also a lot of the anger comes from just the reality that this is so socially and culturally ingrained in us that. Uh, certainly we have the most experience and I would imagine most of our listeners will have the most experience with this in America, but it exists all over the world and throughout time is just this sense of we defend our homeland. That is what we do. We're the good guys and we go out and we take care of the bad guys and protect what is here. So the idea of uh, going and fighting almost regardless of the cause is seen as patriotic uh, and supporting that, no matter what the cause, is seen as patriotic. So to question that is viewed as unpatriotic. I, of course, would completely reject that idea. I don't think opposing war makes a person unpatriotic. Uh, I don't think being pro-war is necessarily unpatriotic either. But uh, I think that we're, we, we are uncomfortable with the idea of questioning violence because it is so embedded in what it means to be American. And that's not unique necessarily to to America, but that is our context. So if we question violence, that causes us to question things like, well, what does it mean to be an American? And that is just too much tension, I think, for for a lot of us to deal with. So we want to shut it down with things like, well, uh, so if we're, if we're nonviolent, the bad guys are going to, you know, get control or, or we, you know, quote Ecclesiastes and say, well, it says a time for war. So there we go. I guess the argument's over. And we do all these things to sort of release the tension without really digging into the issue deeply, uh, in my opinion. Um, and I think we do this with a lot of issues, just try to kind of discredit or get angry as opposed to, with a clear head and something of a sound mind trying to just actually address the issues for what they are. Yeah. And no, I completely agree with you. Um, it, 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 but it, it, once your emotions start flying, uh, <laughs> some, some of your wisdom sometimes can, can get fall out of the head. Right. Yeah. So, um, anyway, uh, where do you want to go get, for, can, where do you want to go from ugly. here? So yeah. there are, uh, biblical arguments for and against, war, military action, and then there are kind of some logical or theological but not expressly biblical arguments for or against war. Why don't you go ahead and lay out, Lance, um, and, and in saying that you're in favor of war, we're obviously not saying you're like, you know what, we need more wars. Like You're not like, hey, every <laughs> right. war ever is a great idea. Like right. Obviously, that's not your view. But what is the biblical case for there being some Christian allowance for war? For war, Yeah. So everything is going to come under the kind of the title of necessary evil. All right. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that that in one sense the taking of a life is uh, can be viewed as evil. Now we have had a, a prior podcast where we talked on the death penalty thing right. about how I feel about life and death. Right. Quite frankly, I believe that life is a privilege, and I think sometimes that needs to be forfeited. Um, I believe that the the greatest thing in life is not to keep living. I think that there is a world beyond this world. I think that God has things accountable. I think that God has no problem killing people. I think so far he's killed all of them. Pretty much everyone. Um, and uh, and so I, I think that for me, 
life and death has a very different viewpoint. So I think that certain things need to be restrained. I think certain things need to be handled um, with what we would define as violence. Um, and I think for me, everything comes back to stewardship and protection. Um, stewardship of what is appropriate and protection over those that cannot defend themselves or they cannot or they're going to be harmed unnecessarily. I do not believe that one person's right gets to end the life of somebody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that's absolutely anti uh, what we would consider freedom or what have you. So mm-hmm. all of that is in, in a biblical sense has to do with God saying this needs to move forward and I'm going to use violent methods. God has used it since the beginning of history. Um, whether or not the correction to saying we're going to wipe out all the world in a flood. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that for God, it is not a problem for him to say, I'm going to translate you from this world to this world. To me, that's not a huge deal to him because that other world is more real than this world. So I really don't feel that transference is really that big of a deal to him. Um, and I believe that we as human beings care, have to carry out the will of God here on this planet. And so um, I, one thing that I'll just jump to the end on with you is that I believe that all disagreements about war um, and about police violence need to be handled at the highest level of authority because they are the ones accountable I believe that the soldiers, the foot patrolmen, people like that are carrying out policy that was designed by someone else. Mm-hmm. I believe that doing your job and moving forward and handling things the way you were told to handle them, I think that although it needs to be thought through whether or not you can partake in that, I think it needs to be thought through onto whether or not it is wise in the moment. I do believe that doing something for someone else is honorable. I think that, so for example, uh, a soldier comes back and people dishonor the soldier because they were doing their job. Uh, think about the Vietnam conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, most, you know, I can't say most, but a lot of people were not were not happy with all the reasons of about that war. Right. The soldiers who some of them were angry at their recruiters, some of them were angry at the draft, right. ended up getting forced into a situation. They carried out their job. They stayed alive and they got dishonored. Right. And you go, whoa, 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 hold on. That needed to be up the chain. Yep. Like this was not my idea. So the idea of arguing with a soldier or dishonoring a soldier or dishonoring a policeman or dishonoring, right? I think is totally inappropriate. I think all the debates and the why in the world are we involved in this war? Why are we using this police poli- you know, policy? Right. All needs to go up the chain. I think they are the ones that need to be held accountable for what's going on. Couldn't agree more. So uh, anyway, because I, I think a lot of times we tend to take it out on the on the guys just trying to do their job. Yep. And if I can just interject really yeah. quick, that's part of how, uh, I mean, I, there's a tension between when I say I'm very supportive of military servicemen and women, but I'm against war and I've been questioned on that a whole bunch of times. Yes. Part of how I sort of negotiate that tension personally is exactly what you've described. That my issue is with those up the chain who are getting us in wars around the world. Yes. The dude who is willing to leave his family and go, you know, go overseas and fight. Like I'm not, I'm not pro the fighting, but I respect the heck out of his willingness to put his life on the line. And I am 
fully in favor of, you know, him getting him or her getting the absolute best medical care when they get back. I am fully in favor of them getting places of honor, discounts at restaurants, all sorts of that stuff. Uh, and that the that they I mean, I think even you look at the Vietnam War, the disrespect shown servicemen and women upon their return uh, is a tragedy in my view. And that that's that's inappropriate. I think, you know, protesting to the ones making the decision is a totally different story. But yeah. I think people who are quote unquote anti-war must, in my view, and certainly I think a Christian view, still respect those who make that sacrifice. Yeah. And I and so for me, one of the reasons why they're put into hero categories for me, um, whether they're special ops or whether they're, they're uh, firemen mm -hmm. or whether they're EMTs or they're a foot patrolmen, um, the reason why they're heroes to me is I've always had a very, very high value on self-sacrifice, um, on I'm going to put my life on the line to protect you. To me, that is so extraordinarily non-human. It's very Jesus-like. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and he put himself in harm's way so other people would not be harmed. Mm -hmm. To me, there is nothing that halos out Jesus like sacrifice. Um, and so to me, I tend to, that's where that all gets really mixed together for me, mm -hmm. where I look at and I go, wow, somebody is being, that is so Christ-like to say, um, I'm going to, I'm going to risk everything to protect somebody else. I love that. That is so Jesus to me. Yeah. Um, now having said all of that, one thing I need to also clarify is that I believe that the Bible teaches that, um, there is forgiveness, there is loving your enemies, and on a personal side, that it is not a, I'm going to do violence for violence. Uh, somebody, you know, somebody comes up um, and they insult me, and so I go beat them up. That is never okay, in my opinion, for a Christian. Mm -hmm. um, because, I, once again, that is the whole, listen, if it's an insult, mm -hmm. I find a great difference mm -hmm. between personal insult and personal danger. Um, so, for example... I believe that if someone came up and they said um, uh, they they made some dishonoring comment towards my daughters, uh -huh. um, I don't believe that I now can go follow them home, right, and beat the living daylights out of them. Right. I think that is anti what Christ was trying to teach. Mm -hmm. If someone is coming at my daughter with a gun, I will shoot and kill that person mm -hmm. because it is unacceptable to allow them in their poor decision makings to mm -hmm. end the life of an innocent, mm -hmm. whereas they are no longer innocent. They chose to interact with a gun mm -hmm. into that situation. I will then shut them down. Mm -hmm. So once again, it's the idea of personal, oh no, I've been, my 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 pride has been violated. Yeah. Now I'm going to let, every time I think that's going to be wrong. Right. I think that's a point of turning the other cheek. Right. So, so what you're describing then is uh, that violence is acceptable in cases of, say, self-defense or defending the innocent, but it's not acceptable in positions of vengeance, retribution. You've done something that I don't like, so therefore yes. I'm going to go beat you up. Right, sort of right. Thing. And so this is what ends up coming into where um, I think you and I would probably stand shoulder to shoulder mm -hmm. when, when we would go up to Washington – Right. Mm -hmm. And talk to the powers that be mm -hmm. of going, hey, guys, what are we doing in this conflict? Yeah. What in the world are we doing here? Yeah. Right. Like, so I, I think that you and I would probably have very similar views about being able to talk to the people that can make policy and things like that when they start saying, well, we're the good guys because we need those oil fields. 
Uh, sorry about that. We're going to yeah. have a bit of a disagreement on that one. Right. Right. So once again, I'm not saying that all war is just war. Right. As a matter of fact, I think the majority are not mm-hmm. um, because usually it is driven by a non-Christian mindset and it's not always protection. Usually it's economic advantage. Yeah. So the economic advantage part I struggle with significantly. Right. Right. Because I don't believe that that's okay. Yeah. And, and of course, that's never I mean, I don't know that any population in the history of humanity have had their leaders pitch war to them as guys and women. We need the economic advantage that comes with winning this war. Like, that's never what it is. It's appeals to religion. It's appeals to freedom. It's appeals to all these different kind of values that leaders can use to motivate people to do awful things. Well, and and I think that's more recent, actually. Yeah. I think that um, if we're talking about, hey, this barbarian group is going to go over and steal all of the others because... They have a cool watering hole. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> right. I do think that that, that probably it's, was. It's a little more. Cl- well, the yeah, plan. I think maybe survival at that, at that point. <laughs> you know, so. but you're absolutely right. The manipulative tools to be able to say, oh, we're doing it for this or we're doing it for that. Um, the uh, anyway, I so I'm not I'm not trying to argue that all thing all war is great and all this stuff. What right. I'm saying is there are certain things that need to be handled by violence. Um here, here's one of my pushbacks I'd like you to talk through. Okay. My pushback uh, towards you. Okay. I feel like any pacifist view, especially in terms of military, uh-huh. is because of it, it has a, a number of unspoken assumptions. Okay. Number one, education. Um, this whole idea of, hey, there's other ways to handle it. No, no, no. There's only other ways to handle it if you're in college and the other guy's in college. Then there's other ways to handle it. What do you mean by that? Say more about um, that. What I mean by that is diplomacy has to do with concepts, sharing okay. concepts. It has to do with critical thinking. It has to do with I can give you this, you can give me that. It has to do with high-level strategy. And I don't believe that everyone has that ability. I don't believe everyone has that worldview. I don't believe everyone has that. The only way you can do diplomacy is if the other person is willing to talk. Okay. Um, and, and so the idea that, oh, there's non-lethal ways we can handle this. That is absolutely not correct in certain circumstances. So, for example, if you have a nation, we'll leave them unsaid, mm-hmm. wants America's stuff, it, they want to conquer us. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with diplomacy. Mm-hmm. They want our stuff. Until we give them all of our stuff, mm-hmm. they're not cool. This yeah. is not a matter of we had a conflict over something. Yeah. It is sheer domination. Yeah. And in that process, you can go to the table all day long. Mm-hmm. They still want your stuff. Yeah. And, and so that is not going to be solved um, when uh, we'll go back to, you know, you mentioned a couple things in your prep about Hitler, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Hitler was going to storm through and, and, and genocide is the idea. I'm going to wipe this, per, this group out. Mm-hmm. That is not going to be stopped by diplomacy. The diplomacy is not that I ever want them to exist. Like, I, they're going to die, right. and I will kill them all until you stop me. Right. So these types of things, as it, I feel, and this is where I'm, I'm kind of asking for your clarity, yeah. I feel like it's only a position that, number one, a rich person can have because you're safe right now. Mm-hmm. The idea that your kids are safe, you can put them into a house. If you have extreme poverty and you're in the middle of a violent environment— and your wife is under threat of being raped on a pretty consistent basis because you don't have anything to protect, anything to protect you. 
I think that you began to see the world does not operate as cleanly as suburban, wealthy life, especially the rest of the world. The whole rest of the world is operating on a very different mindset. And so we don't get to call the shots in America and tell everyone else how to handle it. They're going to handle it their way. And I, and, and, and so give me some thoughts on how you process that. Sure. Yeah. Um, I don't think I'm going to give you answers that you're going to like very much, or at least it'll be all that satisfying to you and to to people that are in your, your camp. I mean, and, and, and there's certainly some legitimacy to what you're saying. I mean, one of my seminary professors who was herself a pacifist said that, uh, people say that being a pacifist in America is like being a vegetarian between meals. It's like, well, lottie dog, good for you. Um, but a couple things. And, and this Mm -hmm. is where, this is where I would get into, um, just the sense that I believe that discipleship to Jesus Christ is a very radical thing and perhaps more than we can even fully appreciate is okay to your, to your issue of education, wealth, and safety. Uh, again, on some level that is true. I can have a rational conversation Mm -hmm. with some people, uh, and I just can't with others. And I'm, Fortunately, not in violent situations, but there do, there does need to be some level of reasonableness to be able to have those different right. types of conversations. But here's where, to me, the education, wealth, safety um, argument breaks down a little bit is I believe, and I said this in my prep, I don't believe you can make a positive case for violence from the New Testament. I just don't believe it's there. And the New Testament was written in a radically violent world. It was not written in Roseville, California, Mm -hmm. right? This was a world where everything you're describing was a real issue, was a live concern. You look at, in particular, say, for example, the book of 1 Peter. This is a church in exile where this is not like, oh my gosh, nobody said Merry Christmas when I bought my stuff at Michael's. Like, this is real persecute. That wasn't very nice. Oh, well, we're going to move on. That was funny, though. (laughs) It was kind of funny. Um, This wasn't a world where it was like, well, you know, those guys over there should probably stop being so violent. This was a very live issue. And yet, what is what is the the consistent call of first peter it is being righteous in your suffering it is look to the example of jesus it is be faithful in the midst of persecution you look at the words of jesus um it is true that the turn the other cheek thing was about human dignity more than it was mm-hmm. about violence that is absolutely right. true and i think it's fascinating but it is also true that when he says do not resist the evildoer that that word means violence it means violently resist it doesn't mean do nothing. When he says don't resist, it doesn't mean, okay, keep hitting me, but it does mean do not violently resist. And again, this was not written in a gated community. (laughs) This was written in a very, very violent world. So on some level, we have to be able to say, okay, the New Testament written in a violent world said you are to be a nonviolent people, even in the midst of violence, even in the midst of wildly ranging intellectual abilities, even in the midst of foreign powers, secular powers. Well, I don't know if anyone was secular back then, but you know the idea. Uh, Pagan powers, there we go, that are trying to get you. So that would be my answer to the, the first one. My answer to the second one is kind of the idea of the bad guys have to be stopped. And if they're trying to get us, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. Um, my first would be this, that the scenarios, that the counterpoints, um, to a nonviolent position, the theoretical scenarios make it sound much more clean than the actual scenario would be. For example, uh, to use a personal example, you talk about um, 
well, what would you do if somebody broke into your house and was, you know, trying to kill your family? Like mm-hmm. that scenario is, first of all, almost never that clean. There are a variety of factors to consider. John Howard Yoder, who is a famous pacifist theologian, wrote a whole book about that subject, kind of breaking it down and really kind of explodes this myth of like, well, I guess my only options are kill the guy or let him or watch him, you know, murder my family. Like that's just not true. And in the same way, what do we do about Hitler? You know, those sorts of examples. Mm-hmm. Like, first of all, Take Dietrich Bonhoeffer as an example, who himself was a pacifist, who was against violence, but felt like he needed to do something about Hitler. He and his people tried to kill Hitler. They failed. Hitler took it as divine providence and divine, like, hey, look at this. God is for me and reinvigorated him. So there's that element of it. And also violence, wickedness, evil, deceit, all, you know, murder is never one person. I mean, would the Third Reich have been negatively influenced by the death of Hitler? Sure, it would have. But do I think it would have ended World War II? No, I don't think that that's that's true. And you have the preceding issue of part of the reason why Hitler came to power is because nominal Christians were okay with it. There is a powerful, powerful story. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it is it is just incredible. In Preston Sprinkle's book, uh, Fight, the Christian case, a Christian case for nonviolence, he talks about a pastor in World War II feeling this tension of like citizenship in heaven versus citizenship for the country. He talks about how, you know, we have a great nation and God gave us Christianity as its soul. And it's from these Christian roots that we have grown and developed. And he really wrestled with as World War II came around, man, do I fight? Do I not? Jesus seems nonviolent, but I need to go fight. And ultimately he chose to fight. And he was German and he fought for the Nazis, you know? So this is this idea that part of the reason why we had this issue is because Christians weren't doing their job in the first place. So, um, and then here's the, here's the hard part. Here's the part that you're really not going to like. And a lot Mm -hmm. of people don't like is that at the end of the day, if we're going to talk about violence, we have to talk about what is our chief value is our chief value, faithfulness or effectiveness. Nonviolence is not a is not necessarily a great strategy to rid the world of war, because bad guys are always going to exist. Stanley Hauerwas, who's a theologian who's in, influenced me a lot, is, puts it this way: He says Christians are called to live nonviolently, not because we believe nonviolence is a strategy to rid the world of war, but in a world of war, as faithful followers of Christ, we cannot we cannot imagine being anything other than nonviolent. Nonviolence might get you killed basically is what I'm saying. And if anything, actually, it is where I share the value that you talk about, that self-preservation is not the chief value, mm-hmm. where I can say, and I would hope I would say, that faithfulness to Jesus Christ, which caused me, causes me to be nonviolent, is a greater value than effectiveness, which causes me to kill for my own self-preservation. So, Yeah. Okay. So, so there's a... Along with the debates about who are the bad guys and things like that, the uh, one of the philosophical challenges and differences is what is Jesus like and what 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 is God like? Yeah. Um, so as I listen to you talk, I I I have to admit that I don't I don't see the same Jesus that you do. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, the the. The consistent argument that the Bible teaches nonviolent, I, I, I just don't, I don't follow it. I don't think that that's accurate. The idea of, of trying to splice out New Testament from Old Testament as if they're two different gods is, is, a, is a mistake. 
I think that one flows right into the other. I think that they're different scenarios. I think that Jesus had a very specific purpose in why he was here. And in order to do that, he had to die. I think that um, when the New Testament was written, uh, Israel had nothing to protect. They had already lost everything. Uh, that's very different than if they were a nation and they were being attacked. Uh, they're not. They had already been devastated. So the New Testament is completely in a I have nothing to protect mode. Um, they did not have any standing army. They can't. They couldn't do that. That had already been handled. Um, if you and so you have to carry forward and say last time that they were a nation, how were they handled by God? And that was very much about police action and about military action. So divorcing the New Testament and Old Testament and trying to put them in the same categories, uh, meaning that that God suddenly now handles it this way when the entire environment is completely different, I, I think is a mistake in terms of how to read Scripture. So, so the idea that, of course, Jesus was a pacifist, that was the point. Anything that was, he was supposed to die. As a matter of fact, when it wasn't his time to die, he miraculously and magically walked through the crowd. Mm -hmm. Okay, I don't have that ability. But if it was not my time, he said, it's not my time to go. They all wanted to throw him off a cliff. Right. And they couldn't because he supernaturally. So the, the point was, he was saying, listen, I have a purpose to die, but I have to die at this time. That whole drive of his life changes everything it makes his whole world different as to how he operated with people Mm -hmm. the other thing is all the mentions of violence and nonviolence that has to do with in the new testament has to do with defending you because of your faith it has to do with they're trying to kill you because you're a christian they're not trying to kill you because you're a human they're not trying to kill your son they're trying to kill you because of what you stand for in your faith. Okay. And in the faith, that's where martyrdom comes in. It's the idea of saying that I believe that I'm going to take a higher stance because right now what's on trial is my faith, not my, not my existence. Mm-hmm. My faith is on trial. And in that, martyrdom was a larger statement to make because faith was on trial. I don't think it had anything to do with personal defense. I don't think it had anything to do with uh, national defense. They didn't have any national defense. So, mm-hmm. so that's why I'm. That's why I have a hard time. You know, all these people that you're mentioning, it keeps sliding out of purview because I'm going that they're not talking about what we're talking about. Um, it, the Bible doesn't talk about what we're talking about. The Bible is not saying. And then uh, some rogue guys came into Peter's house. And tied up his mother-in-law, and he was like, "Yeah, that's fine." You know what I mean? There's nothing. There's no stories like that. Mm-hmm. There's no stories about any of that stuff. It's talking directly either about faith or you're following the model of a man trying to die. And and I just go, you know what? This is not. That is not everyone's calling. Our job is not to die for the sins of the world. Mm-hmm. That was done. Yeah. And so. To use biblical arguments to argue for pacifism when that's not what it's talking about is weird to me. And that's what I meant by I don't understand the Jesus that you're describing because I'm going, well, hold on. Hold on. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been rolling since since the dawn of creation. There's more history before the New Testament right. than after the New Testament. Right. And what Jesus brought in 
changed this element, not this element, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, so that's I'm just trying to point out. That's why when you when you say those points, you're like, right? And I'm like, no, no. I am not with you. I yeah. I don't see at all. Um, you know, let's say we have let's call it young Earth, right? Uh-huh. So we have um ten thousand years before the New Testament, two thousand years after the New Testament. And here we are. Oh, well, God changed everything to where now he's not the same nature that he was for 10,000 years before that. I disagree with that. Mm -hmm. I think that the exact nature of God moves all the way through into the New Testament, but the scenarios have changed. The unique scenarios in Israel and the unique scenario of Jesus, I think, does not address at all our modern day world when it comes to lethal violence or not okay anyway that's uh, uh, sure okay no that 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 makes sense i think i'm tracking with you on on most of that and um man we may need another episode or two to sort all this out <laughs> totally uh, but because you're sorry about that. but I, I guess i want to clarify that uh like i actually kind of agree with a lot of what you said like i don't see this like huge disconnect between God of the Old Testament, Jesus of the New Testament. Obviously, I'm not a Marcionite to throw right. out the yes. uh, the nerdy theological term, right? <laughs> like, I do not believe that like God of the Old Testament is different. Like, like God is like Jesus. Jesus is like God. Amen. Like, I, you know, like I'm totally clear on that. And and also, and this is what what I think trips people up when I talk about this from from a lot of different sides of this argument is the idea that did God ask people to be killed in the Old Testament? Yes, obviously He did. And even as a person committed to nonviolence. Like, I'm okay with that because if anything, if there is any sort of legitimate killing ever, it's God saying this person needs to die, sure. to die. that that is God's prerogative to do that. And and you can say that the situation in the in New Testament times is very different than today. And mm-hmm. that is true. And I, I think there's a, there's a, I don't know, we can get into the weeds of, of kind of a counterpoint to that. But I also think we have to look at, there was some significant historical particularity with what Israel was going through as well. And Israel was very different than their surrounding cultures in a lot of ways. Uh, the Old Testament speaks repeatedly uh, against militarism. Some trust in chariots. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. When Israel conquered their enemies, they burned their chariots and hamstrung their horses. That's like killing a guy with a knife and then not taking his gun. Like that just doesn't make any sense. Because the idea, and or you look at like famously the story of Gideon where, you know, his army gets whittled down to like him and four of his friends and they go out and conquer. The whole point was you are not strong. You're not just out there, but you know, carpet bombing people and winning wars on your own military strength. You're winning Israel because I am with you and I'm fighting for you. And there are instances in the old Testament of when they fight without him, they fail. So there was some historical particularity there in that God was doing something with the nation of Israel, but it was not this sense of let's build up a massive military force. Let's go out and police the world. Uh, now, that doesn't fully make my case, but I think that it helps us see, was God of the Old Testament the same as Jesus? Yes, he was. But just as we might say there's some historical particularity to the New Testament, that was there in the Old Testament as well. And it is certainly a mistake to take, you know, be strong and courageous, Joshua 1.9, and apply that to 21st century wars today. I, mean, I the, agree. The, 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 you know, the Lord fights for you kind of thing. Like, ee, that's, yeah, it's like the Crusades. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's, a big, that's a big problem to me. So I guess all I'm trying to say, and we're not going to solve this obviously right now, but what I'm trying to say is that 
we need to pay attention to the different, to, to yes, there are, like God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yeah. And the way, and the fact that there was violence in the Old Testament does not necessarily negate that the New Testament shows us nonviolence. Even if you're going to argue that, okay, they didn't really have the opportunity to be violent in the New Testament. So I would make that argument. Yeah. So it, it, here's the only pushback, and then I think we probably need to wrap this up. But, but um, the only pushback is I think that some of the examples that you brought up in terms of Gideon and, and how God felt about their military, once again, I disagree. I think that uh, they had soldiers they were supposed to have an army. I don't think the point was simply to, um, Hey guys, how can you put out your lamest? Um, so I, you know, I think the point was that God was saying, listen, I don't care how many people you have. You need me. That's the bottom line. And if you have more, you'll tend to miss that point. Mm -hmm. So in certain circumstances, I'm going to whittle it down just to make it so obvious to you. Mm -hmm. I think those were individual lessons. I think the answer is, and those did happen and there was the norm. Mm -hmm. So I don't think the whole point was to never have a standing military. Otherwise he would have banned their military. He did not. Mm -hmm. The point that David got in trouble for in, in doing a censure of a census of Israel was not that there was an army. Mm-hmm. He was counting it to try to use that as his strength as opposed to God. Um, the whole idea that David's mighty men, they're heralded everywhere. The point was not to hurry up and get rid of them. God didn't mm-hmm. ban them. Mm-hmm. They, they were his mighty men for a reason. Mm-hmm. And all the times that the, the wars ended up happening, it wasn't just the campaign, the, the promised land campaign. There were still wars that were going on all the time. And never was God going, I'm all against war. And you know what? Um, you need to get rid of your military. There was never a comment about getting rid of the military. Um, it was part of the way of their life, and they had it from the beginning. Yes, it's true. It's a part of the way of their life. Um, but I think there are inter- intermediate positions between full-on militaris- militarism and get rid of the military, and I think we would probably disagree on. Yeah, uh, so simply, I just think, I think it's an and. What God, what, what God was saying there. So it's funny, I want to, as we, as we wrap up, I, I want to, um, I don't know, I, I feel like I have like resources I want to direct people to in terms of, hey, how, I, like, sure. what, like what has been helpful for me in my own yeah. exploring this topic. Um, I don't know that you've necessarily done a lot of research no, into like, hey, should. here's a book on like, a pro-war, I mean, there are plenty of them out there. But, but I represent a majority view yeah. on, uh, of of modern-day American evangelicals, yeah. right? Uh, right? So I don't I, I don't have any... The, the irony, once again, I want to point out is that none of my arguments uh, for military action or for police force have anything to do with being American. And yep. you know me well enough to know that that is not... I don't link it in with my politics yep. uh, because I actually have different views than sure. a lot of people. Yep. Um, so none of that has to do with it. But having said that, there is almost too much information. I think that is bog- uh, tons of information that's bogus yeah. that argues my side of things. I would never <laughs> want to send anyone any of those resources anyway. So quite frankly, by all means, yes, my no. brother, 
give them a different viewpoint. Well, and I think you and I both agree that a bad argument in favor of a position, of a position you support is no, still a you. bad argument. It's a bad so, argument. Yeah. So I just think a few, um, probably the most accessible for just, you know, kind of if you're just an ordinary person who wants to learn more is, is a book that I actually reread this last week. It's called Fight, A Christian Case for Nonviolence by a guy named Preston Sprinkle. And here's why I love this book is because he, first of all, it's, it's very much written for lay people. It's, it's very non-technical. And he is a gun-owning, red meat-eating Republican. I am none of those things, <laughs> but I love you if you're any of those things. Um, but like, I love the fact that he he writes and speaks from that perspective because he's not some you know Birkenstock wearing, granola chewing hippie like me. You know, he <laughs> he's somebody who who fits the profile, and he's somebody who who full on says, if I didn't follow Jesus, no way would I be into. Christian nonviolence. And he goes through the Old Testament. He goes through Jesus. He goes through the letters of Paul. He certainly goes through Revelation and all of that stuff. And it's really fascinating. So would encourage you to, to take a look at that. If you want to go a little more in depth, um, guys that have influenced me include uh, theologians like Stanley Hauerwas, John Howard Yoder, uh, Richard Hayes, um, Walter Wink, and a few others. And more recently, there's a guy named Brian Zond who's been helpful to me on this as well. But anyway, there's a whole list. I've studied and read about this topic a bunch. Dietrich Bonhoeffer as well. So anyway, but yeah. Preston Sprinkle fight. In fact, I would go so far as to say this. If someone wants the book, I will buy it for you if you will read it. That's how much I want people to read That's this awesome. book. That's awesome. So anyway, That's there awesome. you go. Once again, let me just close out this thought um, is that everyone, I hope that as you're listening to this, you have to realize that we are super limited on time. And so <laughs> we have a million things that we wanted to get into and we wanted to you know, tackle and handle. We cannot get into all those nuances. Also, yep. I can't fully explain uh, my views within this limited amount of time, neither can Pastor Brian. Mm -hmm. But what's important to understand throughout all this is that we're learning and we're listening. Um, as much as I have disagreed with Pastor Brian, wherever he has made these points that are true and good, I need to let them soak into my soul and I need to keep asking Lord, what would you have me learn? And so, Pastor Brian, once again, he and I are going to be wonderful friends the minute we walk out of here. Um, and and it's just super neat to be able to talk about this stuff. Now, are we passionate? Yes. Uh, do we get agitated? Yes. But we're trying to find truth, not just trying to win an argument. And I think that that is what I would like every one of us to take away. Um, also, I want to be very honest about the fact that I have, uh, in my short amount of time, I presented a lot of different opinions about different communities and they, and they were so woefully short and small, yeah. um, that could be seen as very offensive. And yeah. so I apologize if I have dishonored anybody in presenting another opinion that I was not well-versed in. So anyway, that was yeah. all my disclaimers. We can close it out. Now. All right. That was uh, that was good stuff. We hope that this conversation was uh, helpful for you. And, and more than anything, we hope, you just hope that you can recognize just diversity of opinion and thought about a lot of this stuff and hope it spurs some conversation and research and pressing into the, the Lord and pressing into conversation with others. If you enjoyed the show, uh, please leave us a review on iTunes uh, and rate us and let us know your thoughts and be with us in two weeks for the next episode of Engaging culture. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Engaging Culture, a podcast by Bridgeway Christian Church. If you enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. Music is used under the Creative Commons license and is provided by Dexter Britton.